you. All right, listen, I've got a, I've got a message tonight, and I, I think I can make it brief because I think it relates to this stuff. So we'll see. There is skepticism in the crowd, so it might be like Jesus being in that town, couldn't heal anybody because of their unbelief. So it'll, it'll take an eternity for some of you to get uh, through this, but Ronnie, because he's filled with belief, is going to feel like it flies by in just a few seconds. It's already almost already done. Almost already done. Understanding Logos, Mercy, and Grace. We're in chapter 4 of Hebrews, and it, it is so incredibly relevant here. Uh, there's a, there's, I just want to walk through it. There's only like eight verses, seven or eight verses, but they're so power-packed, and they have one of the coolest things in them that I have no idea what it means, but I can't wait to preach on it. So it's going to be really fun. So uh, here's what we're going to cover. We're going to cover from Hebrews 4.8 to Hebrews 4.16, okay? The first section is about the rest of God, and we're going to review that a little bit based on what we did last week. It just says, for if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works. As God did from his, therefore let us be diligent to enter into that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. This is why it's important for us to not doubt the relevance of reaching out to Minneapolis. And, and there is a rest available for that city tonight. There is a rest. It's God's rest. We don't even have to make it up or manufacture it. There is a rest. Okay, the next one is going to be about the logos of God and the logos of us. That's the weird part that I have no idea how to actually teach, but I just want, I want you to know it's there, and I want you to know that it's bigger than we think, okay? So, for the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, you guys probably understand, if you've been here much, the Word of God is the Logos ton theon, right? It's the Word of God. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit of both joint and marrow and is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now, that last line is one of the weirdest translated lines in all the Bible. There's a number of translations that say, to whom we have to give a report, or to whom we are dealing, or with whom we are dealing. What the words are, and I'll show you when we get down there, uh, are what make this an amazing passage of Scripture that I wish I knew more about. The last one is dealing with mercy and grace, the mercy and grace of God, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, this is one of my favorite sections of Scripture. Therefore, since we have a, a, a great high priest, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. but one who has been tempted in all things, as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's what we're, that's what we're reaching out to and for in Minneapolis tonight, is this reality. Um, I heard somebody say, because I'm not going to be going back to this whole scripture on, on screen, I'm just going to concentrate on those words, mercy and grace. I heard somebody say a couple of weeks ago 
that as a result of the incarnation and the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, taking literally a human body into the person of God, into the triune nature of God, that means that God has a memory of events. Now, we all know that God's omniscient, so that's not a, a far concept, but the way he put it was this. He said, God actually doesn't just know through omniscience. He remembers what it feels like to pull a blanket around you to fend off the cold of the night. Come on. Come on. He knows what it's like to be like uh, chased out of town or to be arrested. He knows what it's like to have to confront power. He knows he has been touched by the feeling of our infirmities, not in a religious way, not in an abstract way, not even in a mystical way, although there's plenty of mystery around Jesus, and I love it. He knows what it actually feels like for it to be getting dark and people to be hungry and feeling a sense of responsibility for that. He knows. That's why he can speak into the hearts of the people in Minneapolis tonight. But he can also speak into our hearts because he knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to see fires coming in the distance in the Kidron Valley. Not just as God, but as man. And it's not just a knowing, it's a memory. I was there with you. And right, frankly, he knows what it feels like to go through whatever the gestation stages are of a, of a zygote and then a fetus. He knows what it's like to be lying in a, in a manger wrapped in a scratchy cloth and then to be picked up and nurtured against the breast of his mom. This is the God we serve. This is the, the high priest we have. This is why going to the throne of grace and receiving mercy is a humongous deal and finding grace. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help us understand that there's something that we've somehow slipped into, I think, most of us in our culture, that mutes or dulls our awareness of this mercy and grace thing. So that's what we're going to look at tonight real quick. Yeah. Okay, this is a bit of a review. Remember we talked about rest is not a taking a nap. It's getting to your destination. The children of Israel, when God was talking about them, uh, their rest, it was the promised land they were supposed to be in. Your destination is the possession of your identity in God as sons. We could all have different destinations. Not all of us are, are called to take the uh, promised land, Canaan. But all of us are called to be sons. In the beginning, God ordained that we would be conformed to the image of his son. And that's not just exclusive to heaven. Matter of fact, I don't think we'll be that way in heaven very long at all. Because we're going to be that way here on earth, and then there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and the holy city is going to come down and the throne of the Lamb, and the, and the Father is going to give its light. And I think we're going to find a brand new earth to live out as sons on. I think it's going to be glorious. I think it's going to be wonderful. But that's our destination. And I wanted to use that little illustration here. Rest is not passive like a nap. So get that thought out of your head. It's more like unpacking your bags and putting on your swimsuit and enjoying the pool after you've arrived at your vacation hotel that's halfway around the world. Does that make sense? Our destination is the place of rest. And it's not a passive place. It's the place where you start enjoying what that destination and destiny is all about in the first place. It's not that mystical. It's not that weird. 
We're called to be more than we manifest right now. And I've interpreted that as a duty most of my life. And there, therefore, I lost the, the beauty of it. It's not a duty. It's an opportunity. It's, it's an opportunity to step into our destiny. So this is what we were talking about. That's what rest is. Now, what is belief? Belief is acting on what you hear that brings you to that destination. It's no more complicated than that. It's not a list of doctrine. It's not a list of beliefs. It's acting on the voice that is bringing you home. Belief is not a list of intellectual propositions that you agree with. It's an acted out response from your identity as a son. It's not a list of intellectual things that you believe in. And let's not be talked into that. Belief is never, ever, ever simply a mental exercise. All right, so tonight, I don't know what was going on in your head, but most of you in this room and most of you online actually exercise belief because you sang, you prayed, you declared, you stepped into sonship on behalf of brothers and sisters, not just Christian brothers and sisters, human brothers and sisters in Minneapolis and around the world. That's belief. So we got to learn to give ourselves credit when we believe. You know, if you have to say, hey, I believe, help my unbelief, that's fine. But don't sell it short. Don't, don't make it some kind of religious elitism. It's just simply being quiet and listening and then doing something in response to what you hear. All right, now we're going to look quick at the logos. Here are those verses again. For the word of God is living and active. Okay, so that's logos of God. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joint and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. Okay, these are connected. His sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now, I'm not saying that this utterance, this logos utterance, can't be found in part on the pages of Scripture, but I'm saying if we're going to live like sons and not like religious acolytes or servants, we're going to have to realize that Jesus is the center of this. And this is the first lesson that I want to drive home tonight about the New Covenant. What did, the new, what did, what did Hebrews start talking about? In times past, in different ways, God spoke to the prophets and through the men of old and so on, but in these last days, the ones we're living in, the ones the writer to Hebrews was living in, he's spoken in a son. He's the son. Jesus is that son. All right. So my, my, my admonishment to us is don't detach the logos from Jesus. Don't detach the word. I don't mind if you include the Bible as a source of revelation. I actually believe it is, and I love it, and I study it, and I use it, and I find things in it that thrill my heart. But I, I, as much as it's possible to say you're not guilty of something that somebody else might have been guilty of, I don't think I'm guilty anymore to the extent that Jesus would have to come to me and say, Larry, you search the Scripture thinking in them you find life. And they are that that testify of me, but you refuse to come to me and receive life. If I'm making mistakes right now, it might be that I, that I bail on my study a little early and go to Jesus and say, what the heck does that mean? What's going on? Give me this. Give me this. Give me this. That's what I want us to be able to do. 
Okay, so we don't have to play these things off against one another. This isn't God. Jesus is God. These are the sayings. These are the logos. This is the word. Now, let's look what goes on. So this right here, the logos of God. Why did I highlight this? Let me show you. So this phrase right here is hologos to theu. It's the same one that's the same phrase that's used about the word of God in the prologue to John. This phrase is hologos. I understand why people have a hard time translating it. That's why when somebody says, to whom we must give an account, they're trying to capture the idea that there's a speaking thing going on here. But you know what? The only reason that it's that hard to translate is we don't think of it in New Covenant terms. Jesus is the center. He is who God has spoken through to you, and he is through God speaks through in you. We carry the logos, the logic of God, the communication of God. He lives in our lives. You know, we read in Ephesians that, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Well, who is that Christ? That's the logos of God. Jesus makes this statement as confusing as it could be, and as all of this kind of stuff about the two-edged sword and, and all this kind of stuff, Jesus provides the brackets that hold this thought together. Now, I am way beyond my ability to clarify this to you. All I'm saying is if we'll choose not to detach the logos from Jesus in our minds, then when we find a representation or an expression of the logos in our heart, we're not confused about who it is and where it came from. It's Christ living in us, which of course is what the Bible teaches. It's what Jesus said. In that day, you'll know that I am in my Father. All of us, no trouble with that. And you're in me, and I'm in you. In the same way, he said that when I, I'll send the Spirit, and the Spirit is going to be in you and with you forever. We have to start believing this. We have to start, and how do we believe it? Well, because it's a revelation that brings us deeper into our sonship in God. And you guys, you, you ladies know I'm not excluding. I'm just trying to keep the point sharp here. This is a revelation of God bringing us into the fundamental relationship that the new covenant is about, which is a son. And therefore, our task is to do what rest is called for. Believe it. How do you do it? Well, tonight we did it. Tonight we were silly enough, we were foolish enough, we were believing enough to think that we could reach however many thousand miles it is to Minneapolis and have an effect on the lives of people who are broken by anger, broken by disappointment, afraid of their life, afraid for their business, and you know, whatever. It's just believe. Just do it. Just do it. You're not responsible for being done perfectly anyway. All you're responsible is to listen and do. That's believing. And then when somebody comes along and has an insight for you, listen, ask the Lord, and do. Somebody comes and they teach a, an amazing Bible study, listen, go to Jesus, and then whatever he filters that through you and into you, go do it. That's life. That's Christian life. 
Whether it's about healing, whether it's about living, preaching, buying a house, taking a nap. That's Christianity. That's New Covenant Christianity. Although, it's not a proposition. It's an engagement. It's a relational thing. These two phrases being bracketed by the Logos. What does this mean here? And there is no creature hidden from his sight. That's easy enough to understand. The imagery there in the Greek, I don't have time to go into, but it's awesome. It's like taking a sacrifice and pulling it right in front of your face before you slit his throat. I mean, that's what the Greek words are. I don't know that's exactly what the Lord's planning on doing to us. <laughs> but nothing gets beyond his gaze. Nothing gets beyond his gaze. And, and, and it says that everything, things are open and laid bare. You know how, do you know how big a deal it would be if we just gave up the myth that we could hide things from God? That's stupid. That's stupid. He knows exactly what your bathroom looks like. He does. Every bit of it. There's nothing in our lives. And that's when the next part comes into play. There's nothing that God does not intimately see, intimately know, and understand better than we understand it, even when we're doing it, whatever it is, okay? Let's understand mercy and grace. Let's choose our definitions. I don't know how many of you guys have heard these, but the two most common definitions that I hear in Western church theology is that mercy is not getting what you deserve. Makes some sense, right? But I don't think that's a great definition. And then sort of the flip side of this is uh, we talk about grace as being undeserved or unmerited favor. In all humility, I want to tell you that those are horrible definitions. And they're not only horrible because they're not very clear about anything. They're horrible for another reason. The focus of these definitions is on who or what. It's on me. It's us and me-centered. The definition of mercy is that I'm not getting what I deserve. It's behavior-centered. And worst of all, it's transgression and sin-centered. Let me tell you something. Grace would not be the component that it has to be to redeem the world if it was based on me and my behavior and the sins I commit. It just wouldn't work. That kind of ointment won't heal what ails you. It has to be based a different way. There has to be another. But why are these defined this way? Because we're not looking like sons and thinking like sons. We're not letting Jesus be the one that, that is the centerpiece, the, the amplifier, the, the rectifier that, that corrects and speaks God the way he really is. So you bail out on Jesus and inadvertently, you're bailing out on your own identity. So you're stumbling around trying to find who's God, what's it like, what's it like to live righteously. Look at Jesus. Listen to Jesus. That's how God spoke. Remember what Jesus said. He said these in John 14. Uh, you know, have I been with you so long? Don't you know that, that, that I and the Father are one? And then he said, the words that I speak, listen to this carefully. The words that I speak, this is like John 14, 11, 10, 12, something like that. The words that I speak, they are not my own. They are the Father abiding in me works. In other words, 
The words that Jesus speak are the expression of the relationship. And that's what we're missing in these two definitions. Because me not getting what I deserve is, is a freak of luck. But it isn't a relationship. And the same thing over here. Unmerited favor, undeserved favor, that's something that God just can throw on you from a distance in, in the image of your head. That isn't what it is at all. As a matter of fact, these two things totally screw up our ability to even read what the Bible says. I had an interesting thing as I was studying. There was this one pretty comprehensive kind of uh, commentary analysis, lexical analysis. And the guy had done, built a teaching on the basis that most of the uh, uh, admonitions that Paul gave, or the salutations, is uh, grace and mercy and peace. And so he said, we need to understand that grace comes first before there's mercy. Because if you don't appropriate God's grace, you can't have his mercy. Well, that's an interesting thought. And I, I've, I've built a few doctrines off obscure scriptures in my day. So I'm not judging the guy. The only problem with that is that is the exact opposite of what the scripture says here in Hebrews. It says we come boldly before the throne of grace because we have a high priest who's passed into the heavens and we obtain mercy. The first thing we're greeted with is mercy. Then grace. So that tells me that this sort of definition and, and what flows from it and the way we talk about grace might be wrong. Same with mercy. So here's what's true. If you go in and you look around the scriptures, and then you dig into the lexicon. Mercy, new covenant mercy, is forgiveness applied. Forgiveness applied. This is not me just making this up. This I've got to read to you. I don't have it on screen. All right, you know that Hebrews chapter 8, the, the characteristics of the new covenant come out of Jeremiah 31, right? So here we are in Jeremiah 31. I want you to listen to something. Whoop, let me read Hebrews 8 first so it's fresh in your mind. Hebrews 8. Oh, yeah. Well, it, it's deep, man. I mean, once you start thinking about that, Ryan said it's a new understanding of the God of mercy or his mercies are new every morning. See, well, just let me make this point and I'm going to come back to it. No, 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 but I, but I want to. Um, okay, here it is, Hebrews chapter 8. The criteria that's taken from Jeremiah... Um, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers. On the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts, in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people, and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizens and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me from the least to the greatest. Now, this is the part I want you to listen to before I go back to Jeremiah. The writer of Hebrews in the Greek pulled this and, and quoted it this way. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Okay, keep that in your mind. I will be merciful to their iniquities and their sins I'll remember no more. Here it is in Jeremiah. So I could read the same covenant. It's almost exactly the same. So I'm just going to jump down here to the end. The Lord says, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, 
and they shall be my people. They will not teach again any man his neighbor, saying to his, uh, that man to his brother, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. It's a big deal. The prophecy that Hebrews 8 is quoted from does not say, I will have mercy on their iniquity. It says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Hebrews says, I will have mercy on their iniquity. I'm not picking on the people who quoted or the writer of Hebrews. I'm saying, this is, I'm sure, given to us by the Holy Spirit to link the correct aspect of mercy. What is the big deal when you come to the throne of grace and you receive mercy? What are you receiving? You are receiving the fruit of the blood of Jesus. You are receiving forgiveness. Now, when I first thought about this, I go, but that messes me up because I thought we were forgiven once for all. You are. That's what you encounter when you come to the throne of grace. You encounter the once for all blanket forgiveness that was revolutionary. That's an inside joke. With I think me and Holly are probably the only ones that were on. Oh, you guys were there. Were you there for that blanket forgiveness? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I'm not going to get in a theological argument with anybody because I have the mic and I can mute all you guys on Zoom and everything. I would win it. I might not be right, but I'd win it. So I'm not even trying to get technical. I'm just goofing around. I'm not trying to get technical about this. I'm saying that all of my life and everybody I know thinks that mercy is kind of like uh, a transaction or something. In other words, like even the next definition that I've got here, I'll show you. Uh, the lexical definition is it's the outward manifestation of pity. It assumes the need on the part of him who receives it, that would be us, and the resources adequate to meet that need on the part of the one who shows mercy, that's God. But again, all my life I lived thinking of mercy as something that when I screw up in an individual instance, I cross this line, then what I get is an instance of mercy back. But what the new covenant says is different. It reveals it's different. It reveals that mercy is in fact new every morning. That mercy is in fact a consistent application of the resource of the blood of Christ and the forgiveness once for all, according to Hebrews later in about four chapters, for us. If we turn around this definition, now we have a wide open space to understand what grace is. I even saw some of the commentators that said grace and mercy are synonyms. I reject that on its face. Why would the Holy Spirit inspire a thing that says obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need if there wasn't something different about them? He wouldn't have listed the order. Mercy is the fundamental embrace in the kingdom of God and in the new covenant of God's forgiveness and your life. And every time you go there, it's renewed. Every time you go there, it's fresh. You don't even really have to confess for that to happen. Matter of fact, the new covenant takes confession to another direction. It says, hold fast your confession. 
Don't turn it into a mercy-seeking transaction. And, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I'm 100% right on all this stuff, but it sure makes a lot of sense to me as I start seeing it connect. Come boldly before the throne of grace. Why? Because we have a, a high priest who has memories of the very things that are causing us to stumble, the very fears that we're overcoming. We come to him, and here's what we get. We get that application of mercy. One of the other aspects to the word mercy is that it is an active application. It's not passive. It's active. And that's why when I'm, the Lord first showed me this scene of Jesus at his right hand, the Holy Spirit bringing me before him. I had a big ugly thing hanging off, and God's there. The whole encounter begins with the Father rubbing his hands like this, going, I've got just what you need. I've got just what you need. Not an ounce of disgust in his eyes, not an ounce of rejection, not an ounce of disappointment. This is the system he built. This is the government of the new covenant. It's designed so people who are constantly going back and forth over this line are met with the prize of the kingdom, the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of sin, according to the scripture. It's not something that happens one time, and then you wonder, man, how do I get back to that sense of freshness? How do I get back to that cleanness? How about this? Go to God. It's brand new every moment, every day, every encounter. There's nothing there to earn. Belief is not earning things. It's not wrestling a doubt down to the ground. It's simply, oh, and going. If the children of Israel had did that, it had been a whole different story at the Jordan. Okay? Does that make sense? That's mercy. Well, that's what we call grace all my life when I was learning. Grace is God constantly, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's the blood of Christ, it's the application. I don't think so. I think, that, I think we've turned grace into a transactional deal that steals it of its enormous capacity, and the capacity is one of relationship. Grace is not some kind of state or condition upon which my name is applied. <clears throat> the focus of this one is God's reaction to us and our act of restoration every single time we encounter God. That's why we have got to get our heads around the fact that people can't out mercy. You can't. You can't. Because mercy is not something that's stored someplace. Mercy is the Father's embrace of the work of the Son. And he's not confused. When Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing, that wasn't confusing to the Father. He goes, I, I don't know if I can do that. Of course you can do that. That's why I sent you. Once... For all time. Hebrews later makes this amazing statement. Jesus will come back again uh, a second time without reference to sin. Without reference to sin? Yeah, that just echoes the clause there in Jeremiah after the forgiveness of sin, which is called mercy in the new covenant. And, I, and your sins, I will remember no more. No reference. That's another way to say that. In my mind, says the Father, I have no need to refer to your sin. So what is he going to do instead of dealing with our sin when we come to him? Because we think grace is the excuse that we have and that God has to work out our sins and get them done. No. 
Grace is the embrace. Okay, here's New Covenant Grace. The basic definition of grace is what delights. Grace is what delights. A graceful person is a delightful person. Beautiful, friendly, you know, whatever. Grace is, is what delights. Grace is what motivates us to feel delight towards something. So one of the big revelations of my life came a number of years ago. And it was this definition of grace expanded a little bit. It's, it's the benevolent feelings in the heart of God towards somebody, towards somebody inferior to him, which, of course, is everybody. That's grace. And I thought my whole life that mercy was a feeling, like some kind of stirring compassion. No, mercy's a nuts and bolts application of the life of my son and his death and his resurrection, and you can't outsin it. Grace is the feeling thing. When Paul says that by faith, uh, or this grace in which we stand by faith, he's not talking about some kind of legal arrangement that allows me to get this far over the line and not get judged by it, but if I get out here, I get in trouble. He's talking about the heart of his father, who he came to reveal. Grace is the benevolence in the heart of God for you and for me and for everybody deciding whether they're going to break that curfew tonight in Minneapolis. Grace is how God feels about you. Now, I know, man, when I was in Bible school, if I'd ever said anything like that, that would have made people skin crawl. Because feelings, how important is that? Well, it's pretty darn important when you're talking about the feeling that is in the heart of the creator of the universe and the sustainer of the universe. And we lose out on that when we try to make a doctrine out of grace rather than a relational foundation out of it. When we come to the throne of grace, we're coming to the seat of our relationship with God. And we encounter what's in his heart. And what's in his heart is this benevolence. Now, you go back to a definition. Well, we'll do that in a second. You go back to that definition about um, unmerited favor. We'll see that in a second. Hebrews 8, 12, you can see it. 2 Corinthians five nineteen. How about this? God was in Christ, reconciling the whole cosmos to himself, not counting their trespasses against him. Well, of course he's not counting their trespasses against him. Why would he do that? He was right there in Christ working to make sure those trespasses were not the issue. What the issue is, I've destined you to be a son since the, before the beginning of time. The method of being a son is to be conformed to the image of God. I mean, in the image of Jesus. And that's why I sent him. So he could find the parts of you that couldn't be conformed and pull them into himself, bring them through death, and conform them. And grace is the freedom that God has to love you because of the success of that process. The focus on this is God's view and feelings about you and me. I've never thought about grace like that. I've always thought of grace as some kind of complex mechanical system that enabled God to be both just and the justifier. And maybe it works that way. 
But the truth about it is that it's God's view of it. It's how he sees us. And let me tell you what. Most of the problems in this world, most of the problems that drive the kind of stuff we see around here and that we pray for tonight, it's not because people don't understand that there's a mechanical process that God used Jesus to make so that in spite of how they feel and how they behave, they're still okay. That is not going to heal your heart. What's going to heal your heart is when you terrifyingly maybe even come into the presence of your father and realize this is the God that made me. And you look into his eyes and you see nothing except love. You see nothing except love. That'll change you. And I don't know whether it was the enemy that caused us to switch those two roles and, and make mercy uh, the, the feeling, touchy-feely part of this, and grace some kind of mechanical thing. But uh, let's get them back where they belong. The irresolute application of the finished work of Jesus is mercy. And the, the love and the kindness of God that leads to repentance and that desires us and that caused David to be called the apple of God's eye by God. That's grace. It's about feeling. So, I say let's choose our definitions. If mercy is either not getting what you deserve or forgiveness applied and being actively restored and kept shame-free every time you encounter God, which are you going to choose? And I invite you to study it out, and if you think I'm off base on this, challenge me. But I don't think I am. Or if the definition of grace is undeserved favor or experiencing the genuine delight of God, uh, the, the delight that God holds in his heart for you. Anybody got a choice there? Preference? <laughs> I believe this is true, guys. I believe it's what the words mean. I believe it's what the concept is. And I believe it's what the new covenant reveals about the nature of both mercy and grace. And I think it's stunning. What makes these new covenant definitions? Because this is how Papa treats... Let me get this out of the way so you can take a picture of it. This is how Papa treats and thinks about his sons. And why shouldn't he? Any good father would think that way. Any good father would think that way. And for whatever reason, religion has slandered those feelings and mechanized them. And I'm, I'm believing that as sons, we're supposed to be set free from this. Okay? All right, so I was planning on this being quick. Well, it was relatively quick, but I was planning on being starting earlier. And so uh, do you guys, anybody, anybody want to, anybody got a question? Anybody got a thought online? You got, anybody? Okay, step up there, Janet. Hello. A great way to connect to the Father, to this um, definition of His love, mm -hmm. is to think of how much you love your child or a certain loved one. That when that feeling wells up, yeah. and how much you don't want that child or that person to be, you know, judged 
Ronan Hill or whatever, sure. you know. It's sure. like you would do anything to have that child forgiven. Yeah. And the other thing that, to go with that then to make it really like sticky in your mind is give God permission to feel. Yeah. Don't turn him into some kind of crystalline ogre. Somebody that's easily offended and it, it's, it's turned off when you make a mistake. He has feelings. He has passion. He has orge. Give God permission to have feelings, but don't assign them all to judgment or offense. What kind of, what kind of source for creation would, would a God be that was only obsessive and, and had no mercy and had no grace and had no humor and had, you know, Nobody survives like that. That's a mental illness. Don't assign that to God. Yes, He loves us. He loves us. He loves us. Anybody else? Anybody online got a thought? I do. One quick question. Hi, this is Brett. Hey, buddy. Hey. I'm back here. Um, you know, you always said, I don't know who it is or what it was, but how man made up the system of requiring that our father or their father, or they didn't really know if it was their father, I guess God required some sort of payment or, or transaction just, just to love us or forgive us. And, and where did that all come from? But that's probably a bigger, bigger topic down the road. I mean, it, uh, it came from fear. It came from fear when men separated themselves from the relationship. What was broken, and this is why we don't get it in religion and we can't help people fix their hearts, because we think the story of creation and the fall was about violating a rule rather than abandoning a relationship. They abandoned a relationship and they found themselves living in a place that was too big for their britches. And it hurt. And it was disastrous. And it was faced with death. And it was faced with all kinds of other things. So the issue, and again, Brett, the complexity of why it's gotten so religiously complicated is because we keep trying to fix a problem that isn't the problem. We're trying to fix a problem of breaking law when the problem is breaking a relationship. And once you get back and recognize that, and that's what I think is so beautiful about the New Covenant, it flips it around. So I'm not coming to find grace to fix a violation. I'm coming to find grace that renews my hope in being loved by my Father, that renews my vision of His eyes as they truly are, and I don't paint them with some kind of disgust. That's why it's worth fighting for this, guys. That's why. Because that's the environment that you really can ultimately overcome in. When you know you're loved. That was what turned the tide for the prodigal son. I know my dad's got more than I got going. But when he came up there, man, it was different from him making his own case and the father hugging him into life again. That's what we're about. That's what we're about. I was going to say, good answer, family feud. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. Praise God. All right, anybody in the room here got a question or a thought? Anybody else? It's pretty late. I'm going to let us go tonight. And I know I, I love the breakout rooms, but we've been at it for a while, and I don't regret it a bit. Paul, I want you to be able to give us... Hello, Joseph. I want you to be able, Paul, to give us a, a, a report of, of the night. Just text me, and I'll disperse it to everybody. Good, bad, or indifferent. I mean, we, we want the truth, but I'm believing. Yeah. I'm believing. Yeah, absolutely. I absolutely had the courage. And by the way, great message tonight. You can meet this whole mercy thing. We're going to have to talk a little more about it. Yeah. I, really, I think you nailed it. I do. I think you nailed it, but it, it's, it's, it's a deep thought. Put it up here. Buddy, thanks for those of you uh, joining online. Appreciate it. Thanks for those of you in the room. You guys are beautiful and fun. Huh? Yeah, don't forget to give, Richard says. Yeah, I, I kind of short circuit. Also, Nancy asked me to make a, an announcement. This is mostly for those of you in the room or those that are local. She's building this spa called Tree of Life Wellness Center. It's up in the Safeway Shopping Center uh, in Woodland Park, and she's having a grand opening on Monday, and she's invited us all to be there. It's from 10 to 6, and they're drawing uh, stuff, so you might get some kind of cool stuff. They got a... Uh, it's Monday from 10 to 6, and it's, it's right like two doors down between the liquor store and the smoke shop next to Safeway. So it's perfectly positioned, and uh, it's really cool. Vicky and I stopped in there the other night. There's things like infrared spas, that kind of stuff. So please just go, and it'll encourage Nancy, and they'll do a drawing, and you'll probably end up like getting a head, head massage or something. Yeah, or some other frenzy thing. Oh, Pardon? Robin. Oh, hi, Robin. Hey, yeah, she's having a big drawing. And, okay. Um, but there's there's some really neat stuff that deals with um, uh, healing through frequency. Strongly encourage you guys to go up there if you can. It's a little far for Joseph. He'd have to come from Kampala. <laughs> but uh, in any event, you guys. All right, so God bless everybody. Uh, here, there, Minneapolis, be blessed and realize that every single time that you believe, because believing is just simply stepping out and coming boldly before the throne, like it says, every time you do that, the blood of Christ and the forgiveness of Christ is applied to you in an absolutely fresh, brand new way. That means there is no capacity to have a history of sin-based disappointment hanging on you. You may still have to do it, but the way you do it, it says there is you find grace to help in time of need. What's grace? It's God with you, delighting in you. That's how David overcame uh, murdering his friend, sleeping with a friend's wife, <laughs> and covering the whole thing up using his political power. That's why it was after that still that he could be proclaimed a man after God's own heart. Because there is a fountain of, of that mercy that cleanses us and then it cleanses us right back into the relationship that got broke at the fall and it's not broke anymore. Okay? All right. God bless you guys.